J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana vavatu, sahana bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahai, tejasvinavatitamastu, mavitvishavahai. Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview with Tom Knowles. I'm Tom. In this talk, The Myth of Control, Favoring Choicelessness, I'm going to challenge the idea that having many options is an idea of heaven. In fact, that options are a working definition of hell. That what we really need is to discover the one true thing that is evolutionary for us to be doing right now. So tonight I'd like to explain the whole universe to you. And I want you just to follow along. This is being recorded, so you'll have lots of chances to hear it again and again and again. And the subject is the myth of control, although actually we should call it the fallacy of control because myth is actually a very good word that has received a lot of bad press. And then the subtitle was Choicelessness, Surrendering to Choicelessness. And let me just take that provocative title and put it into some context for you. About 10,000 years ago, there was a great master by the name of Vasishta. And Vasishta lived in India and had an illustrious student by the name of Ram or Rama. And in a treatise which became known later as the Yoga Vasishta, meaning the method of gaining union of individuality and universality. That's what the word yoga means. According to Vasishta, the Yoga Vasishta. And it was really the teachings of Vasishta to his illustrious student, who, by the way, was full of questions and challenges and so on as good students typically always are. But I'm going to say some things which, at the beginning, this provocative title may seem like, what? Choicelessness? What? Is this a determinism versus free will thing? What is this? And actually what we're going to discover is neither free will nor determinism are correct. If we take them individually, they're absolutely both correct. At the same time, they coexist. Let me explain. So according to Vasishta, once upon a time, once upon a time in the Vedic sense doesn't mean a time as in, you know, a long time ago, the Big Bang, 18 billion years ago, whatever that was. We can think of time in that way, 
as having a linear quality, or we can think of time more successfully as having a vertical quality. What do I mean by vertical? There is a layer that is constantly in existence, which is the unmanifest, and we're going to give it a capital A, absolute. The absolute. This is being, pure being or isness, which has in it infinite potentiality, but has not yet manifested into anything. It is undifferentiated, absolute, and it has nonetheless an agenda. And its agenda is to stop being absolute. It wants to become relative. Why? Because relativity has a quality inside of it of attraction back to the absolute. And the absolute has a faint memory. It has a memory of having been relative before. What do we mean by relative? We mean the field of change. In the absolute, there are no sequences. There's nothing but simultaneity. Everything is simultaneous, and there are no things, actually. There are just potential qualities. Infinite creativity in potential. Infinite intelligence in potential. Infinite organizing power in potential. None of it is kinetic. None of it is active. It is unmanifest, pure potentiality. We think of a colorless sap inside this flower, and although it's completely colorless, it has the potential to make itself into this pinky color. It has the potential to make itself into the green. It has the potential to make itself red. It has its potential to be flat or round or fragrant. But the colorless sap itself, though it has all of those potentials in it, is absolute. It is unmanifest. Unmanifest means it hasn't yet expressed as any of these one individual things. And then the absolute commences a process of becoming manifest. And the relative begins. What does the relative mean? Where sequences start, where time begins. And when was that? The when is not so much of a when, it's a where. There is a layer, there's a stratum built within this, deep within everything. When was the colorless sap? Well, actually, the colorless sap is here now. It's inside here. It is right now manifesting as all of these different qualities. So it's not a question of, was this all just a great big blob of colorless sap once? No. Right now, while it is manifest, red, and flat, and round, and all of these qualities, it is also colorless sap at a layer. There's a layer in here that's colorless. The absolute permeates everything because everything is emerging from it. Why does it become relative? What's the purpose of the absolute breaking its symmetry and moving into relativity? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. I'm going to answer it for you. Because <laughs> two hands went up. <laughs> I know you're very eager. <laughs>
It's for that thing, the most overused word in the English language, love. I love you. I love you, darling. I love you so much. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love your shoes. Oh, I love pepperoni pizza. Oh, I love that movie. Oh, I love that full moon. It's a full moon night tonight. Full moon Thursday, which in India is called Guruvar. Guruvar is the night of the guru where discourses are given by the guru every night on Thursday night. So we're in time and in tune. I didn't even know until we actually, we did the date and then suddenly, oh, it's full moon. Oh, it's guru night. Oh, good. Very good. So I love moon. I love you. I love this. I love the pizza. I love, you know, I love this leash for this dog. Isn't that a cool leash? And then your lover is looking at you going, I thought you loved me. Leash, pizza, pepperoni, shoes, two? <laughs> What's this word love? Anyway. <laughs> so we just love the word love. So we apply it to everything. Even if we just like, a little heart pops up instead of a like. <laughs> love. <laughs> the absolute loves to love. And you cannot love if you are one only. You just can't. There's nothing to love. The only way you can have love is there for there to be, at the very least, two. <laughs> and what does that mean? Difference has to appear. And sequence has to appear. So, the absolute has a nature, and its nature is to express forth into relativity. And the reason why it's doing that is because it imbues within the relativity its nature to return back to self. It wants to return back to unity again. So, just like when you feel love for somebody. Oh, you like that song? I like that song. You like that color? I like that color. You like that beach? I like that beach. You like this? I like it. Let's get married. <laughs> Since we like everything the same. So who are you liking? You're liking you. You're liking yourself. And that's the fun thing about love. We're exploring to see how many unity points we can find in the other person. Or in the thing, or in the place. I love St. Petersburg. Love it. I love Buenos Aires. That's where I just came from. I came here from Buenos Aires just now. <laughs> Arrived here from Argentina. Just an hour or two before this. Love, 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 love. What are we looking for? Something that feels like me. It's something that feels like me. I don't want the mirror. The mirror is too much like me. It's almost one. It's almost one. One is not lovable. Two is lovable. Two is lovable. If you can be thinly disguised me, I just absolutely adore you. <laughs> Now, what is all this? Attraction, 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 attractive, and all of that. The gravitation, the absolute went boom, and it bifurcated, and went out and became the many. And then what are the many all up to? They're looking for the unity, looking for the oneness again, wanting to find, how are you the same as me? How are you the same as me? Is there any, let's find the points of commonality. Always looking always looking for that. 
So we have this undulating mass. Nature of the absolute, boom, to go out, become relativity. Relativity, to come back to being absolute again. What's this got to do with control? <laughs> what we really have here is one thing behaving as if it is two things. It has two aspects to it. The it is totality. Let's just call it totality. In Sanskrit, there's a beautiful word, Brahman. B-R-A-H-M-A-N, not to be confused with M-I-N, which is a caste of people. In India, Brahmin. Brahman, Brahman, M-A-N, means totality. It means the absolute and the relative world both taken together at the same time. It's not correct to say the absolute. That's the ultimate truth. Actually, no, it's not. Because what's the absolute doing? It's constantly wanting to become relative. And everything that is relative actually is absolute. This pink here is actually colorless sap. If we squash it all up and mash it all up and everything and push it between two panes of glass in a high-pressure liquid chromatograph and put a laser beam through it, we'll discover it's just nothing but colorless sap. It's actually sap. It's sap that has turned red or pink, whatever that is. So, absolute and relative are the same thing, different aspects of totality, same one thing. One of them has an absolute nature, that is to say, it is unmanifest, seeking manifestation. The other is manifest, relative, differences, time, sequences, and all of that, seeking the supersymmetric, the undifferentiated, the sameness, the oneness, the unity. So we have Oneness seeking multiplicity, and we have multiplicity seeking oneness. This is the Vedic worldview. Totality has these two elements in it. Now, the absolute, when it bursts forth into relativity, has layers of and stages of development into relativity. The first thing coming out of the undifferentiated, unmanifest absolute is highly ordered. It's relative, relative still, because it's something that has the, the first manifestation. Highly ordered, still nonetheless relative, not absolute. Very close to absolute, but not quite. As we progress further and further from the absoluteness, into greater and greater sequence, greater and greater differentiation, greater and greater relativity, we see more and more entropy. Entropy is a physics term for disorder. Disorder. As we get closer to the absolute, increasing order, increasing order, increasing order like that. There's a reflection of this in the laws of thermodynamics and physics. You take a beaker of water and you heat it until the water is nearly boiling but not quite, and you look at that with a scanning electron microscope, and you'll see all of the little molecules of hydrogen and oxygen banging around and zooming around and all of this chaos. If you take the beaker of water and cool it, 
and make it cooler and cooler and cooler just before freezing, all of the molecules line up into perfect neat rows. It's about to freeze, crystallize into ice. And it's highly ordered, very ordered, and it also purifies itself. If you mix salt into the nearly boiling water, it will just stir itself in and become homogenous within a very short period. You don't even need to stir it. But when you cool it just before freezing, it will separate the salt. Anything that becomes highly ordered also becomes pure. It purifies. When we're very close to the absolute, when we're examining that layer, then everything is highly ordered compared with that which is far from the absolute, that which is very differentiated, very relative. Gross relative, we call it gross, not as in gross, ooh, gross. Not that kind of gross, but gross as <laughs> not subtle. Not subtle. So very, very subtle, very subtle, beyond subtle. The super subtle is the absolute. And then we have the gross relative, lots of differentiation. So you're getting this picture now. All of this is one indivisible whole consciousness. It is all one indivisible whole consciousness. It's not that there are in fact lots of things. There's one thing that at a layer of it behaves as one thing, and there is one thing that at other layers of it behaves like it's many things. But in fact, it's all one. It's all one thing. That one indivisible whole consciousness is expressed in all things that exist. All things that exist are expressions of it. All of the colors and forms and aspects of the flowers are expressions of the colorless sap. Colorless sap expressing itself. Beautiful. One thing. One indivisible whole conscious field manifesting as matter manifesting as matter that is less organized, more entropic, more disordered, and matter that's highly organized, matter that is very ordered. Let's look at very ordered matter. You take carbon, which is the stuff that's left over from all the stars that exploded over a period of time, and you allow it to organize itself in particular environments, and you end up with literally a human brain. Your body and your nervous system is predominantly carbon made up of the products of stars that blew up sometime between the Big Bang and now. And that matter all got organized into something that could sit around thinking about its place in the universe. Which one of these levels am I at? So if we take you know a big pile of rust, something that was a Rolls-Royce once, but got left out in the rain. And after 30 years, it just turned into a big pile of rust. But you can take a human who was born at the same time as the Rolls-Royce was taken out of the factory, and that human has somehow become even more orderly over the period of the 30 years. More orderly thinking, more integrated behavior, actions, more talent, more capability, a larger and larger and larger repertoire of behaviors, a broader repertoire of behaviors, whereas the Rolls-Royce just decomposed. 
over the same 30 years. Entropy took over that, but this thing, over the same 30-year period, got more sophisticated, far more sophisticated. Now, there is a tendency within the relative world which we call evolution. And evolution, I'm going to now hijack that word and take it out of the realm of biological science as its only way of defining it and put it now into a metaphysical context. Evolution. Evolution means progressive change. It implies change from that which is less sophisticated into that which is more sophisticated. We could perhaps say, and I, I'm going to say it anyway, that the most, the highest pinnacle of sophistication is another beautiful word of the English language, and that would be elegance. Something that is elegant is something that has evolved into being elegant. It's gone through stages of simply a big pile of atoms and molecules into organizing itself into something elegant, like a woman sitting on this stage who could be playing the piano. Her immune system could be fighting viruses. Her brain is organizing new elements of the music that she's playing while she's playing it. And she's pregnant and she's creating another brain in her, in her body, creating another human. Amazingly elegant. How elegant is that? An astonishing multiphasic evolutionary example. Something that gets better and better and better. Bred into everything, not just the so-called animate things, because we're going to get past the idea in a moment of there being certain things that are sentient. Sentient means they think, or animate, which means they're alive. Built into the totality, we have the absolute, the one indivisible whole consciousness in its unmanifest state, becoming relative, which is then the one indivisible whole consciousness now behaving as if it's lots of things. And what's it doing? What is its driving force? What is its prime directive? To evolve, to grow, to become more sophisticated. More sophisticated about what? More sophisticated with reference to discovering unity. This is what all of science is about. You have thousands of different theories about the way things work. Theory of gravitation, theory of electromagnetism, theory of this, theory of that. And what is it scientists want? And they've been wanting it even though they haven't quite got it. They're 99% of the way there. A grand unified field theory. One theory that explains absolutely every observation. One theory. Rather than having a zillion different theories, a theory of psychology, a theory of child psychology, a theory of adult psychology, a theory of adult psychology in Serbian males, a, th a theory of adult psychology in females from the Pijanjara clan of the Aboriginal tribe of Australia. How many theories can you have? If you have a zillion theories, then what you have is fragmentation of knowledge. All the knowledge is fragmented. So evolution is built into the structure of things. And when sophistication is present, its hallmark is that there is 
a sense of being at home with all knowledge. Sophistication has to do with non-fragmentation. It's not sophisticated to be a pianist who only knows about the first 13 compositions of Mozart and has never heard of Johann Sebastian Bach. That's not sophisticated. So what is sophisticated? Breadth of knowledge. So everything wants to grow into more knowledge, more understanding. And what is that? It is a tendency toward identifying with totality. There is, built into every relative structure, a tendency for that structure to move back toward the absolute, to move back toward that field which is the home of all knowledge. It's the source from which everything came. And when I use these words that make it sound like it happened a long time ago, like everything came from there, I mean from which everything comes, is now coming. Everything is now manifesting from that. Now we practice meditation, and meditation has amazing effects. And all of the effects that it has, absolutely everything that it's known to do, has to do with our brain and our physiology, our nervous system and our consciousness becoming progressively more and more sophisticated and elegant. As you practice meditation, your tastes grow. Why? It's because of a thing that you're doing when you meditate. You're letting go of a notion that traps you in a less sophisticated consciousness state. When we don't meditate, we get trapped in less sophisticated consciousness states. Stress is a very unsophisticated consciousness state. It's highly specific to surviving predator attack. I'm stressed. Well, that's what you say. What are you stressed about? I'm stressed because my favorite TV program got canceled. <laughs> right in the middle of it, I really like that actor. I'm stressed. Not terribly sophisticated set of statements. What is stress actually for? When you have the fight or flight response, it's supposed to be reserved for a very sophisticated behavior in either getting away from a predator or killing the predator before it kills you. Stress actually has a, a place. Its place is in surviving predator attack. When we've had stress behaviors over and over and over again, we end up becoming habituated to stress behavior. Unsophisticated behavior is inappropriate and irrelevant responses. It's not relevant to have predatorial escape tactic responses going on when TV shows get canceled. It's just not relevant. It's not relevant behavior. When we have lots of irrelevant behavior, then we learn to meditate. And what happens when we learn to meditate? The mind settles down and you learn something very specific, a mantra or sound. And you say, it's a very important thing, this mantra. It's very important. You learn that particular sound, which for you is the resonant sound, which if you think that effortlessly, it will become subtler and softer and quieter spontaneously. And that will become more and more charming and it will draw the mind inward in the direction of the absolute. It's drawing the mind toward the unmanifest. As we move toward the unmanifest, we begin to become more and more sophisticated. 
we start to become more and more unified with everything around us. We start to be able to detect commonality, common themes and traits. We start to be able to detect self within other. We start to be able to empathize and sympathize. We become more compassionate. We become more intelligent. We become more tolerant. We become more cool-headed. Our behavior starts to become more and more appropriate. Love begins to grow and grow and grow inside of us. Our capacity to experience love with the most flimsy little trigger. Some leaf on a tree does that, and you're just like, ah, oh, love, love it. <laughs> Someone says, what do you, well, how come you laugh and smile so much? It's very hard to explain to you. It was that leaf. What, that leaf did it? Well, it wasn't just the leaf. If the leaf stayed still, I'd probably feel the same love too. I don't know. It's just Any little excuse starts to do this to you. And that's because the mind is becoming habituated to being in that less excited state, closer to the source, closer to that unifying field out of which everything is coming. All right, now, that is all well and fine. How do we accelerate the capacity to be as elegant, as sophisticated, as is our source. The absolute is our source. It's our source right now. Not our source once upon a time. It is our source right now, continuously. How do we identify more and more with that? We do the mantra effortlessly, and any time you feel you're beginning to forget to repeat it, do not try to persist in repeating it. Don't try to keep on remembering it. Let it go. This is the most difficult instruction of all for new meditators to understand. You've just given me a precious sound, and you're telling me to let it go? But if I let it go, and now comes the gist of tonight's lecture, I won't be in control. Surely, meditation is about getting in control. Nope, it's not. Meditation is about learning how you become more sophisticated, more intelligent, dare we say more elegant, every time you learn how to let go and move in the direction of the Absolute. Now, evolution is, as a prime directive, the thing that everything in the relative world has to do. It is the cosmic law. The cosmic law could be summarized and boiled down to one word. Evolve. Full stop. Evolve. Period. This is your directive. Evolve. What does that mean? Does it mean control more things? No, it doesn't. Because there is that layer of you which already is in control. What it means is to expand your consciousness. You cannot stop someone from behaving according to their level of consciousness. You cannot stop yourself from behaving according to your level of consciousness. Why is your behavior better after learning to meditate than it is before learning to meditate? It's not because you got more control. It's because you learned how to let go of control when the mind began moving toward the Absolute. 
to move towards greater sophistication and greater elegance actually is more about letting go than it is about holding on. We learn this in meditation. You have your first successful meditations when you actually try out what it is the teacher taught you to do. The first meditations of the new meditators is say, it's not working, I didn't go deep. I just didn't get anywhere that time. And then you say to the student, well, describe to me what that means, what happened. Well, I was just having all those other thoughts and I couldn't keep them out of my mind. That's a control statement. I couldn't keep the thoughts out of my mind. I, the little individual, trying to stop myself from thinking. Thinking of an elephant. No, don't think of an elephant. Oh, that's an elephant thought. Don't think of that elephant either. Oh, that's another elephant thought. Stop thinking about elephants. Oh, there's that word elephant again. Don't think of the elephant. Oh, don't think of the E. The E reminds me of elephant. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, mantra, 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 mantra. Elephant, elephant, elephant. Oh, no. I didn't do mantra. I did elephant. Oh, you know, I'm a terrible meditator. This is the new meditator. Forcing, straining, pushing, you know, batting things with the mantra and everything like that. And the teacher keeps on saying, and if at any time you feel to be forgetting the mantra, don't try to hold on, let it go. And the meditators, yeah, 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 that's that hippie talk. I have to control. I have to control. You don't know me. I don't get anywhere unless I control. I have to know exactly what everyone's thinking. If they're not thinking what I need them to think, for their own good, I'm a loving controller. It's for their own good that they have to think the way that I want them to think. It's a loving behavior on my part. And if only the world would just get on with everyone thinking exactly the way that I think they should think, then this world would be an absolutely amazing ideal society because I'm ideal, right? <laughs> You see, this control thing, I'm caricaturing it because it is literally ludicrous. Ludicrous means laughable. It's laughable. First of all, control is a complete illusion. What is it you're actually in control of? What are, what are you in control of? Did you predict anything correctly over the last year? One year ago, you thought you knew it was going to happen. From November to November, how much of your prediction about what the next year was going to bring did you get right? Well, maybe you're still alive. You got that part right. You probably predicted you're going to be alive, and you are. If you're here. Beyond simply being alive and breathing, what else, what else did you think was going to happen one year ago that actually happened? The answer is almost nothing almost nothing. The last year has brought for everyone in this room an enormous amount of change, none of which actually was predicted accurately one year ago. And yet, we go back to that same mistaken intellect that loves to sell the idea that it can forecast everything. And we ask that intellect to forecast the next month, the next year, the next 10 years. Come on. If you hired a stockbroker who got things as wrong as your intellect gets things when it tries to forecast, you'd have fired that person years ago. If you hired a weatherman 
who got the weather wrong, you'd have fired that person. And yet, we have this bizarre belief that because I can predict everything, you know, he's going to do this, and the next thing he's going to do that, then he's going to think that, then he's going to think that, and that and that. But if I get him to do this, then he'll start thinking that way, and he'll think that, and he'll think that, and he'll think that. Wrong. None of that's going to happen. Oh, if she does this, then I'll do that. Then I'll do this, then she'll do that. And this kind of, you know, chess playing, playing chess with all the people around us. My boss, if I ask for the raise now, my boss won't give me the raise. But if I don't ask for the raise and I just work really hard, the boss might think, well, before Christmas, I'll give her a raise. Then I'll do this, then I'll do that, and I'll manipulate the whole thing. And then through these cascades of control, I'll get the experiences I need to have in order for what? To become a more sophisticated and elegant person? That won't be happening. There's one common trait that all control freaks have. Failure. They fail to control. Sometimes people who are around them like to give them the illusion, out of compassion, that it's working. <laughs> because we have a kind of compassion. We see somebody suffering so hard at something, you know, then we like to give them the idea that they might be winning, you know, but they're not. Control. Control taught by Vasishta. Going back to the beginning of this talk. Control is opposed to evolution. The more you attempt it, the more you fail at it. And what is it that is in favor of evolution? That is, allowing nature to follow its course. Okay, so right now, the totality, let's call that the universe, because we mean the absolute and all the relative features. The totality, the universe, right now, is giving everyone in this room an opportunity to evolve. And there are candidates for evolution, as many as there are people sitting in this room listening. There's many candidates for evolution and outside this room, and they exist by the billions as well. But we're just talking about the people in this room, because you all came here tonight, so I'm picking on you. You will respond to the call to evolve exactly in accordance with the state of consciousness that you're in right now. If you are a heroin addict and sweating and your liver is starting to fail, but you can kind of afford your habit, and your mind is pushed down into that extremely narrow spectrum of that of an opiate addict who can only see, taste, touch, and smell, and hear, and feel certain things, and whose entire behavior is drug-seeking. That physiology and that consciousness state is receiving the same call from nature, evolve right now. But that narrow spectrum is going to have a very limited repertoire of behaviors that it can use to respond fully to the call for evolution. Might be able to do something evolutionary, something, but relatively minimal. I'm using an extreme and perhaps caricaturing it a bit just to prove a point. If you have 
consciousness that's a little broader than that, that of a loving controller who's in recovery, trying to let go of the tendency to control everybody and everything, then your breadth, your spectrum of things that you can respond to right now, you'll have a broader repertoire of behaviors that you can employ to meet the prime directive. If you've been meditating for quite a number of years and you've removed a lot of stresses from your body by letting go of control for 20 minutes twice every day and letting the mind get closer and closer, ever closer to identifying with the absolute, then your repertoire, your spectrum has gone really wide. And the call from nature, which is the same call going out to absolutely everyone, which says, evolve now move in the direction of even greater sophistication, expression of unity, expression of oneness, the spectrum will be larger. In a state of consciousness where there are no stresses left in the physiology, we call that cosmic consciousness, the individual mind already has identified fully with that inner totality, with that inner unmanifest, and is experiencing it even with eyes open outside of meditation. And the call evolve comes and the breadth of behaviors that that cosmically conscious person can engage in is vast and they don't involve controlling anybody doesn't involve controlling anybody so as we grow and grow and grow in our capability what we are doing really is we are allowing our absolute quality to become more and more dominant in our awareness. It's expressing itself with the greatest possible breadth of knowledge and interests in the outside relative sphere. Our consciousness state is able to respond fully to the demand for evolution. And evolution means becoming more sophisticated at identifying unity sameness. Somebody says, oh, you know, those Jewish people, they sing those kinds of songs. But we Hopi Indians of the Native American tribe of northern Arizona, we don't sing those songs. We sing other songs. But the person who's enlightened goes, but hold on. I noticed that there were certain motifs in the chord changes of the minor keys. And your chants happen to be exactly in step with that, just a half note modulated. Really? Yes, let's play them side by side and you'll see. And, you know, when they're singing their songs and you're singing your songs, in fact, the aspirations of each are the same. And by the way, they're both done when it's no longer day and not yet night in that blue zone. Right in between night and day was the ideal time for singing songs for both these tribes. Oh, and by the way, both are people who enjoy talking about their tribal nature, their tribes. Cosmic consciousness begins to find commonality, whereas stress consciousness, like at the edge of a knife, it cuts and divides. It finds difference everywhere it looks. Differences, differences, differences. There are enough differences in the world. This is the age of enlightenment dawning. It's time for us all to embrace finding that which is common. 
finding that which is common. So, how do we do this? We have to understand that our state of consciousness, whatever that may be, makes us choiceless about our behavior. You might hear me talk tonight and think, I'm going to be one of those really groovy people who only ever looks for commonality. But if you're stressed and you haven't been practicing your meditation twice every day, no matter how much you understand the idea, your consciousness state won't be able to respond that way. It will go back to the behaviors that it's stuck in in that consciousness state. You are choiceless. We want to make ourselves choiceless in a higher consciousness state. Someone who's in a very high consciousness state also is choiceless because the axiomatic statement I made at the beginning, you cannot stop someone from behaving according to their level of consciousness, applies equally to enlightened people and to completely ignorant people. Someone who is completely enlightened, you cannot stop them from behaving according to their level of consciousness. They don't know how not to respond in a full-spectrum, sophisticated and elegant fashion. They don't know how not to. Someone who is bound by the stresses in their physiology is going to be stuck in those behaviors. How do we get from the narrow to the broad? We close our eyes twice a day and let go of the idea of control. Let go of it. Every time you meditate, you're teaching yourself this little lesson. You're letting go of control, allowing your consciousness to become choiceless in expansion. And as your consciousness expands more and more, it will continue to find itself choiceless to behave well, to behave better and better and better until you are behaving as an ideal human. What's an ideal human? Someone who has something for everyone. There's something for everyone. A highly enlightened person can sit with the most educated person on earth and hold their own in a conversation and both can thrive with give and take. And that highly enlightened person could go and meet a crack addict in, uh, in solitary confinement in a prison and sit in the corner with that person for five hours feeling completely blissful inside oneself while giving, even inside that tiny little spectrum of consciousness, and allowing that to expand and help that expand. This is not situationally dependent, that a person can only behave with someone who's at the highest level. No, someone who has that consciousness state has the, they have mobility. They have the capacity to relate, empathize, and bring value to any state of consciousness that comes in contact with them. It doesn't matter who it is. It might be a bully on the street. It might be a gas station attendant. It might be a professor of philosophy. It might be a head of state. It doesn't matter who it is. Someone who has that consciousness state has something for everyone. And everyone who meets this person, who comes in contact with this person, is elevated. doesn't matter what they have already or what they don't have. That's that sophisticated and elegant state. How do we get there? 
you cannot control your way into that consciousness state. You know, I used to work in the prisons, and I met a man once who gave me a phrase that I just thought was so hilarious, I've thought about it ever since. He was a con man who'd been caught after conning too many times, and having already spent his first 12 years in jail, and he had another 15 to come, sat with me one day and he said, I think I'm fully recovered. And I said, that's great. He meditated now, and he's meditating in the jail. And I said, that's great. What, what have you recovered from? And he said, uh, recovered from an idea. And the idea was that I could scam my way to greatness. <laughs> he said, I realized you can't scam your way to greatness. <laughs> Nobody ever became great by scanning, scamming them their way into it. <laughs> so controlling your way into sophistication, it doesn't happen. Control freaks are not sophisticated and elegant people. They're simply control freaks. They're failures. And why are they failures? Because they fail to control. Just look at that. You have to go to sleep at night, right? You can't control people when you're asleep. You can't control your own thoughts. You can't control your body. If that's really a bad news for you, you better start staying awake if you want to control everyone. Call them up at every hour, day and night. And are they really thinking the way you want them to think, or are they just telling you they're thinking the way you want them to think? <laughs> and the fact is, nobody controls anybody, actually. Nobody actually controls anybody. So we want to let go of that odious behavior, of which it goes against the laws of nature, actually. Nature itself doesn't behave that way. Nature itself behaves according to the attractiveness of ever-increasing charm. Why does the mind move effortlessly in the direction of greater breadth, greater orderliness during meditation, it does so because of that effortlessness allows the mind to expand into the greater charm, the greater enjoyment, the greater happiness of the subtle realm. So our consciousness state already makes us choiceless. <laughs> we are going to be doing whatever our consciousness dictates tonight. <laughs> and the nature of the universe, the universe finds itself as the purveyor of its own choice. It is the free will that is determining all of its individual wills. You are that. I am that. All of this is nothing but that. The free will that determines everything is the same one consciousness that is free. And that which is being determined is also the same one consciousness that is free. It's all free and it's all determined simultaneously. Both things are true because there's only one consciousness actually. So what's the take-home from this? The take-home is to see, first of all, meditate twice every day. Be sure you <laughs> practice that. That's very important. That you let go like you're driving your car and you're thinking, oh, you know, all right, uh, five o'clock, oh, the traffic, and then this, and then that, you know, and if I get there just in time, I can have a special one of those juices that, and, that they're going to close in 
three minutes and I've got to go faster in the traffic to get that juice. Because if I get the juice, then I'll feel better from the juice and I, no you won't. And I'll park my car there and even if I have to park in the handicapped place, I'll do that. But it's against my principles, but I'm going to do it because I need to have the juice. You start finding yourself getting into these things, just find some place to all these exits. You know, you 405 out here, every exit. In, in my book, when I see an exit off a freeway, what I see is meditation place. <laughs> meditation place. Meditation place. Exit 3, meditation place. Exit 15, another meditation place. There's another one. You can't meditate on the freeway. You've got to pull off. Exit, meditation, meditation. Exit, exit. It means exit this thing. So you exit, you start your morning with exiting. Before the day begins, you exit, meditate. And then sometime after lunch, before dinner, you exit again from wherever you are. Just exit. Everybody in Los Angeles drives cars. You have little meditation rooms with engines and steering wheels. <laughs> Drive that little meditation room over to some place and stop. Close the eyes and let go. Let go of the idea that that little juice is going to revolutionize your life. It won't. And make, you know, that if you call that person, just say that one word just the right way, or you send that text another time with phraseology just a little different, that's going to really make all the difference in the world. Uh-uh, it's not. What's going to make a big difference is you expanding your consciousness right now. And how are you going to do that? You pick up that little sound and you let it go. And when you discover it's gone, you just pick it up and effortlessly let it go, let it go. You're training yourself in letting go. Train, 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 train. Funny minutes goes by, 15, 20 minutes. There you are. Broader consciousness state, range of responses, all different. So that's number one. Second thing. <laughs> Stop trying to control everybody. <laughs> Just let go of that. <laughs> let go of the need to be a loving controller. The worst form of control is overt, demanding, angry control. You, come here now. That's angry, overt, and demanding. The next stage of it is the hidden one, which we all become very good at, especially in Los Angeles. You know, hi, feel free to say no, but... <laughs> I heard someone say that at the Earth Cafe today. I stopped by there for a little dinner on my way here. A guy comes over, he sees the ideal chair he wants at the table he wants. And there's only one person sitting at this table, that, and he had three in his party. And he walks up to the person and he goes, feel free to say no, but could we please have this table? <laughs> there's another table for you right over there at the bar. Feel free to say no. Sounds very nice, doesn't it? <laughs> or, you know, you've made a dish for somebody. And there they are eating, and you're saying, okay, now just wait, 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 don't eat like that. Just have a little bit of that piece, have some of that. Now move that over there. Now put all that in your mouth at the same time. Now move it around on the back of your tongue. Now swallow it. And all. They just can't wait for you to leave the room <laughs> so they can get on with eating. You cannot stop somebody from behaving according to that person's level of consciousness. You cannot, and you will not. You just won't. You think you're making some headway, and you're not. The minute you're not there, they go back to their consciousness state again. That's all they do. So, 
expand your own consciousness. Be the maximum that you can be. Be the maximum that you can be. And what does that mean? You're available to respond to the genuine need of the moment. And what's the need of the moment? Whatever that is, see to what extent you can use loyalty-based administration instead of fear-based administration. If somebody is accommodating to you or compliant because they're afraid of what you'll do or what consequences you'll wreak on them if they're not compliant, then you have very, very temporary control. The moment you're not there with your fear-based administration in place, they're going to do whatever they want to do. If you make it super attractive, if you are inspirational, then without you even thinking about what it is you would like people to do, people will come and do those things for you without you asking. I call this the baby model. Little baby, the most powerful being in the world. Why is the baby the most powerful being in the world? Because the baby's there in the little bassinet, lying there all cutesy-wootsy and everything. I've had eight of them, so I can kind of be trivializing about them. They're great. And, you know, if the baby could say, you know, this might be a neonate, a brand new baby, if it could say, I want milk, please, you'd rush off and get the milk and everything like that. But the baby doesn't even have to say, I want milk. It's just so adorable that you figure out that it wants milk and you bring the milk before the baby has the desire. If the baby could have desired milk, the milk would have come. But without even desiring it, the milk comes. If the baby could desire a blanket, a blanket would come instantly. But without even desiring, the blanket comes. This is loyalty-based administration of the baby. So, when you are in that simple, natural, innocent, pure, adorable, dignified, graceful consciousness state, elegant, sophisticated, graceful, then everyone around you, without you having thoughts, will bring to you better than what it is that you would have got had you commanded it or demanded it or enforced it. You'll be surrounded by offerings from every direction. Loyalty-based administration works that way. People will be working in your favor day and night, not because they're afraid of you, but because they absolutely adore you. That's the consciousness state that we want. That's the state we want to be in. It's not control freak behavior. <laughs> Otherwise, you can get compliance, but only when you're watching. <laughs> the moment you turn your head and you're not watching, they're sabotaging you. <laughs> Nobody likes being controlled, even by a loving controller. They see a loving controller coming, they cross the street quickly and hope that they're not going to be seen. <laughs> I met a general once. I was the son of a general. And he had another friend who was a general who happened to be a very high-profile general from a particular country who was famous for wearing an eye patch. 
Some of you might know who this is I'm referring to. And a lot of what I learned that I'm speaking about to you tonight came from that eyepatch general who had an amazing capacity to have his forces, and I won't say men because he had women in his forces too, to be able to anticipate what it was that he wanted and provide it. They had learned through loyalty and through love to watch him. He taught by example. That was his whole thing. He taught by precept. They could see exactly what he needed and what he wanted, and they were there with it. And he did do some selection. It would be like, yes, 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 yes. Not right now. Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. When I watched him, and he was considered in his day to be one of the most successful defense generals in the world who carried out an amazing operation of defense when being attacked from all sides. To me, that is the icon, the one who just says, yes, 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 yes. Because those who are around, they've discovered how wonderful and charming it is just to be around you. They study you. And when they study you, they can see just with the movement of an eye, he would like to have this. I'm going to make sure that's there at the right time. Choicelessness is going to mean that we surrender to the nature of things. I'll give you a good example. I was on the border of Austria and Switzerland with my meditation master, Maharishi. It was the 1970s, just barely. We were sitting having a picnic and there were guards from the Austrian side. The line was like an imaginary line that went through the forest. Guards from the Austrian side and from the Swiss side chatting together within sight in this forest where we were sitting in a clearing having our picnic. Some tourists came along and they recognized my master. And they came up and asked if they could please have a photo taken with him. He was a famous man. When they gathered around him and got me to hold the camera, they were just kind of goofing around and everything. And he was sitting there looking very graceful and smiling. And there was somebody behind him doing this behind his head. And, you know, people were pulling faces and things like that. And I had the misfortune of having to take the photos. After they left, I told him what happened. And he just laughed highly intelligent man, most intelligent man I ever met. Just laughed and laughed. And he said, you seem to be so upset. What is it? I said, it just seems to be a shame that those people, they don't know who they just met and what they could have got from that experience and that interaction with you. He said, never mind. They were enjoying themselves. I said, still to me, it seems like a shame. And he said to me something I never forgot. It's a shame to be surprised when a walnut tree produces walnuts. He said, you're expecting mangoes from this tree? Why? Why are you expecting mangoes from this tree? That tree makes only walnuts. And he just thought that was so hilarious. What would the choicelessness be there? I was expressing that I wanted them to behave in a respectful and reverential manner to my master. From his point of view, the situation was filled with choicelessness. 
they were in a particular consciousness state. They didn't know how to behave in any other way than the way they behaved. What was causing stress in his disciple, me, was that I thought somebody in that situation had choice. And in fact, no one did. No one did. So he simply made use of the moment. From his perspective, his memory of it was, it was a lovely day where some people who were kind of goofy came along and behaved in a goofy fashion. But everybody was having a good time. And it's a picnic. Who cares? From his very strict disciple's perspective, some terrible thing happened <laughs> where, you know, people behaved outside the range of what I wanted them to behave. My expectations were inaccurate. And because they were inaccurate, they caused me to suffer. I was the only one that day who suffered. The goofballs didn't suffer. Maharishi didn't suffer. The guards who were standing around smoking cigarettes with a border in between them, they weren't suffering. But I was there making myself suffer. What was that all about? The inaccurate expectation all had to do with the fallacy of somebody there having a lot of choice. Now, if they had had regular exposure, if they'd been around more often, those goofy people who are also evolving, let's hope they've evolved way beyond that by now, they might have caught a word here or a word there. They might have grown and evolved, and who knows, with some practice by now they could be in cosmic consciousness, in a heightened state of consciousness. So that idea that people can choose to behave the way they wish to behave is not correct. I'm sad to say to you, it's not correct. People are trapped in their behavior by their consciousness state. You can incarcerate somebody who is a kleptomaniac and they will steal everything in the jail that they can possibly steal. <laughs> What we have to do is, first of all, we work here. We take ourselves into that more expanded consciousness state with, on a regular basis, and we make ourselves choiceless about that. Now, how many of you would say, and you know, don't feel like you have to please me by raising your hand. I really don't mind either way. How many of you would say that since learning to meditate, you've become rather choiceless about meditating? Like, you wouldn't miss it for the world. Let me see your hands. Yes, almost everyone. It's because it feels so good to do that. And you can't imagine not doing it. It creates such a fantastic change. But as a new meditator, you're learning that. The idea that you would ever get to a state where you felt like, I'd rather miss a meal than to not meditate. People are going to be late to a movie and I've got to meditate and I'm going to be late to the movie and not get in, I'd rather miss the movie than not meditate. We wouldn't have ever thought that we could get to that state. Really, what we're doing with this, we're making ourselves choiceless about expanding our consciousness. We're just choiceless about it. Consciousness expansion feels so good. It's fabulous. <laughs> so, we want to kind of get with the program of choicelessness. What it means is, it means to recognize the nature of things. We recognize the nature of things. I recognize my nature. I recognize the nature of that. 
I'll give you another example, Gurudev, whose picture is just here. This is the teacher of my teacher, Gurudev. He was a reclusive living in a forest. One day he was seen by some people as he was wading in a deep river, bathing in the river, and a scorpion came down the stream. And he saw the scorpion flopping and drowning, and so he flipped it with his hand to flip it over to the bank. But as he did so, it stung him. But he went over a little closer and he flipped it again and it stung him again. And then finally on the third flip, it went over onto the bank and then scuttled off. And one of the Indians who was watching him apologized first, but then said, you know, for breaking his silence, why would you save that miserable creature? Three times it stung you before it finally went on the bank. And not that it was capable of it, but it, it didn't have any gratitude whatsoever for you saving its life. And Gurudev said, you see, so long as he won't give up his nature to sting, I won't give up my nature to save. He won't give up his nature to sting, I won't give up my nature to save. So everything there is is actually an interaction between the natures of relative things. It's an interaction between the natures of relative things. I have my nature, something else has its nature, the nature of the traffic, the nature of the people in the traffic, the nature of everything. I am in interaction with nature. I have my nature, and it's growing and broadening and broadening and broadening until eventually it will become the nature of the universe itself. And all of these individual things also have their nature, and their nature also is growing and expanding. Their repertoire also is growing and expanding, also. So if I say, oh, that guy, he's a jerk. Well, maybe in that moment he was. <laughs> but is it that he's going to be a jerk forever? 50 years, 100 years? If we take the Eastern worldview, 50 lifetimes, 100 lifetimes, a jerk, 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 gets born again, little jerk baby, <laughs> crying like a jerk, you know, demanding like a jerk, just being a jerk all his life, jerk grandfather, jerk great-grandfather, died a jerk, was born a jerk, gets born a jerk again. Is this, what's the, what's the higher nature of the jerk? The highest nature of the jerk is an enlightened being. And that's where he's on his way to. He's having a bad moment, or a year, or lifetime. But perpetually a jerk, that's not the way that universe sees him. And fortunately, fortunately for us, that's also not the way the universe sees us. Thank you. <laughs> I'll spend a moment talking about how you can make your individual contribution to the group effort of these podcasts. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you. <laughs>